I was not ambitious enough. For me, my ambition was to get a, a salary so I could uh, help my girlfriend at the time paying the rent. Eventually, like having someone, you know, who sees things 10 or 20 times bigger for yourself than you is actually amazing. And I think that was the biggest helper and that basically like forced me to think of things in a way at a way bigger and larger scale. Hey everyone, welcome back to the SaaS Revolution show brought to you by SaaStock, the conference that helps SaaS companies get traction, growth and scale. I'm your host, Alex Thuma, and I'll be looking at what it really takes to build and grow a SaaS company today and how founders and entrepreneurs stay healthy on the journey. Now on with the show. Okay, welcome to the SaaS Revolution show. I am your host, Alex Thuma, CEO, founder of SaaStock. Delighted to be rejoined uh, today uh, by somebody who's been on the podcast uh, a little while back uh, as they told their story of how they bootstrapped to 10 million in revenue uh, and delighted to see that they've uh, since grown and we're going to uh, uh, jump into that. Uh, but welcome back to the podcast, uh, Guillaume uh, Mubesh, who is the CEO and founder of Lempire. Welcome, Guillaume. Thanks a lot for having me, Alex. Happy to be here. Good to see you again. And you're, you're looking really well. You're looking sun-kissed. It looks a bit sunnier <laughs> out of your window than mine. Uh, like, tell us uh, where, where are you at the moment uh, and why? Uh, currently based in uh, Cape Town, South Africa. And uh, I've been going there for now uh, the last three years when it uh, gets very cold in, uh, in Europe and, and you lack vitamin D. I go there and uh, I do what I call a, a monk mode where I can really focus on setting up higher objectives for the, the company and working on the vision. Lovely. Why? I mean, obviously, why not? But uh, why, why Cape Town in particular? There are many places to go that have sunshine in the winter months. What is it about Cape Town that's singing to you that you keep going back? So there are like uh, several reasons. Uh, first, I've experienced a lot of different places before, like uh, Bali, Mexico, South America, etc. And what's super nice with Cape Town, it's like it's exactly the same time zone as Europe. So um, I've got a lot of team members in Europe. And for me, it's important to be able like to catch up with them during the day. So that's like number one. Number two, I think like the it's a perfect combination between uh, a good vibrant city and heavy nature. So you have like uh, one of the biggest reserve, natural reserve, like the ocean is amazing. And I think it's like very rare combination and I've traveled a lot. So yeah, it's it's got to be like a, a place where I'm I'm buying a home soon. <laughs> very cool, very cool. Well, like I, I mean, hopefully people don't laugh, laugh at this, but I think I've got a thing about great white sharks so that, in, that I don't like them. Uh, and it was probably because I watched the movie Jaws when I was far too young. Uh, so I, re I remember uh, swimming in the lakes in Finland, which clearly have no sharks. But I was always swimming really fast because I was kind of worried that there would be like a great white shark behind me. So something like Cape Town and when you said, you know, it has a lovely ocean, I'd, I'd probably be myself personally a little bit scared about dipping my foot into the sea. But uh, assuming it's, it's not really a problem or like, have you seen any? Yeah, you, you just, so when you see a shark, you just have to tap them on the nose and they go away. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm not sure about that, um, but uh, good, good, good stuff. And so, uh, Guillaume, um, we, we know that you're in Cape Town. We know you're the founder of Lempire, uh, but tell us a little bit more about yourself. Uh, so so who, who is uh, Guillaume Mubesh? Yeah, so um, I, I started first like uh, being an entrepreneur uh, with, uh, with my dad, who... Uh, basically like uh, was printing on fabrics. So eventually like uh, I said, okay, let's start a, a t-shirt business together. That was about like uh, 10 years ago. 
Uh, it was like a, a massive failure. Uh, we didn't sell any t-shirt. I thought that by just building a website, you know, we would get like thousands of, uh, of orders, but eventually like, uh, we had six, I think in total, <laughs> which was, uh, pretty miserable. Um, and from that point on, I got like really passionate about understanding what would make businesses grow. So after that, I started like a, a lead generation agency where I was essentially running, uh, cold outbound campaigns for companies around the globe. And after using all the software on the market, I was a bit frustrated by the fact that everyone was selling kind of the, the, the vision of putting yourselves on autopilot, while actually sales is about personalization, reaching out at the right time, making sure you know that you want to build relationship with people. And I just thought that I could build like a, a better version of what existed. And that's when I launched Lemlist in 2018 as my first like software company. And then it, uh, grew pretty quickly, uh, in around like four years, we were at like, uh, 10 million in annual recurring revenue. Then I started adding like, uh, other product on the sides. And that's how we created the uh, Lempire, a suite of tools that help businesses, uh, grow. And today we're at like, uh, around $23 million in annual recurring revenue, uh, with a team of 80 people. So last year we, we made, I think around $8 million in, uh, EBITDA. So highly profitable, small team, and trying to help and impact uh, the life of as many people as possible. Awesome. Awesome. Well, well congrats uh, on moving from, I guess, the, the, the failed t-shirt business, which I think like a, lo a lot of entrepreneurs um, who, who clearly have this entrepreneurial thing within them, that often you hear these stories of, you, you know, starting out in you, you know, uh, similar ways of trying to just learn a little bit about, um, you, you know, how to build a business and whether that ends in success or, or, or failure. Coincidentally, um, uh, before I started uh, what it, Sascribe Media Group and, and Sastock, uh, I also uh, thought I was going to make money selling T-shirts on Shopify. <laughs> uh, and um, it, it, it didn't really kind of pan out uh, uh, as well. So we, we, we have some uh, common ground there. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so you bootstrapped to, to 10 million, uh, ARR. I mean, you're still bootstrapped now, uh, but you did, uh, take a secondary, uh, or you did raise, you had a 150 million valuation. I, I think it was, um, yeah. and you had a great opportunity at that time. Um, uh, tell us a little, little bit about that, um, why you did it uh, and, you know, what that's meant for you, uh, like, I guess some founders do talk about, you know, taking secondaries, but I think like yeah. it happens a lot in venture capital it happens a lot with bootstrap founders, but perhaps you don't hear about it as much. Yeah, definitely. I think it's important to be transparent about it because like most people actually me the first, I thought that, you know, when, uh, when you raise funds, I thought that the money will always go to the company. And eventually like, uh, I was in a, in a group of founders like uh, in the U S and they started talking a bit about secondary and the fact that they could take what we call cash out. So cash off the table where they sell shares and the money goes directly in their bank account. And the idea behind it is to say that you've worked really hard on a project for years. You don't want to sell the company because you believe that it can be much bigger. However, you would like to de-risk a little bit because the, the reality is like, I don't come from money. Like my parents, they haven't done like, um, they haven't gone to university. They are not like, uh, they've never been extremely well-paid, etc. So for me, my entire life was, uh, always getting, you know, like, uh, used to looking at price. Uh, I always have the fear of lacking money, you know, like, uh, uh, so, so whenever like you build a successful company, 
and you can pay yourself, you start having a team, everything feels just not real. <laughs> like you feel like it can just uh, stop from the day to another. And eventually when I started learning about secondary and we had more and more VCs or gross equity investors reaching out, I always really enjoyed the bootstrap way because my role was to prove to people that, you know, even we, when you start with almost no money, like we started with a thousand dollar, you can actually succeed. And I wanted to continue showing people that you can do it the bootstrap way. Being profitable is basically like, you have to think that in 2021, when everyone was raising as like a crazy valuation, we were the only one talking about EBITDA. <laughs> like uh, we were talking about profit, talking about these things. And for most of the people, it didn't make any sense. Like they were like, no, you have to spend more money, spend faster, spend faster. And in 2023, 2022, we see all these companies going bankrupt just because they are not profitable. So I always felt it was the right way. And we had the opportunity to cash out like uh, in 2021, like uh, $30 million, uh, which was, we were three, three co-founders. So we each took $10 million, which was like really awesome because with $10 million, if you put the money like uh, and invested the right way, technically like you don't have to work ever again, which kind of like removed uh, a, a big weight from my shoulder. I was able to like... Uh, give money to my parents, help them like uh, with their retiring, etc. So to be honest, it's, it's life changing. And everyone would believe that um, you might like have less ambition when you get to that point, because you could just like go and chill out. But for me, it actually was the opposite. I got like even more ambitious. I wanted to take even more risk just because I know that we can make a much bigger pie down the line. And, uh, and yeah, it's, it's, it just puts you in a comfortable position financially. So your mind feels great, but at the same time, it also lights a fire because you realized that it's just the beginning and that you can do a lot more. Yeah, no, exa exactly. Good to uh, hear that. Cause I mean, I, I've heard a lot, uh, about, you know, founders, like one reason and, 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 and certainly it feels like in this case that, uh, you take this opportunity and you you de-risk and it gives you that comfort, but it allows you to swing for the fences, you, you know, that little bit more. And so would you say that's been true in your case that, uh, I mean, I, mean you, you, I guess you've kind of said that uh, sort of already, but uh, since taking the money, you know, de-risking that you can really, you know, just be more ambitious and some of the things that you've done that you wouldn't have done had you not taken the money. Yeah, 100%. So to give you a very specific example, once I went through this process of doing the cash out, etc., it also gave me the confidence that we could start doing things that we never thought of, like buying another company. Uh, and we bought actually like uh, two or three companies since then. And it helps us do like what we call like a build up, which is adding like more product to our suite of tools in order to grow. And it's, it's so funny because um, I feel like everything is connected. So whenever we started Lemlist in 2018, then in 2019, uh, I built another tool that was called Lempod that I sold after 18 months. And I wrote a long article, like uh, I sold it with uh, Thomas Small from uh, FE International that you know well. Um, and, and I wrote like a, a really long article about it, explaining the whole process. I, I met actually... Uh, Thomas, you know, when uh, I was going to SAS talk uh, and uh, so it was really like fun story and eventually like showcasing how I sold the business 
it basically like uh, drove a lot of inbound leads my way, like founders who were asking me tips, advice, how would you negotiate, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually I had someone who I knew from a long time who told me that he was going to sell his business. He showed me like the terms of some buyers, what he was basically like uh, giving him. And I just said, okay, like give me 24 hours and I'll think of maybe a better offer. And eventually we acquired them and it's been like a, a really cool story. And And I just feel like, when you have de-risk and you start understanding how all the things that you can do essentially with money, everything is a lot more interesting. So something I discovered, for example, and it might also give ideas for other bootstrap founders out there is whenever you have like, um, and you're profitable, like, and, and you generate EBITDA, you can actually go and, uh, see a bank and take a loan from the bank that is like up to seven X what you get from your EBDA. So you were mentioning like Nathan Latka, I think it does like similar thing also with FounderPass, but there are so many ways actually when you're profitable to get more money to invest in acquiring other business, building up, et cetera, et cetera. And I've known people and I've met a lot of like really successful founders where their main company has not grown for let's say 10 or 20 years, but it's a cash cow. And with that cash, they keeps acquiring other businesses, which make the global company grow and skyrocket to like, uh, and, and to be honest, if you look at it, that's exactly what most private equity company have done for like uh, the last uh, 25, 30 years. Yeah, yeah, no, no, absolutely. And I think, again, maybe sort of answered the question there within that, because I was curious, around the M&A side of things, so obviously you're highly profitable I was going to ask: Are you you funding these acquisitions through the profit? Is your um, you know growth equity investor helping out there, or is it that you know because you you've got this eight million in EBITDA now that you know you can go to the bank get the loan and you're funding the acquisitions through the bank loan? So uh, which one uh, of those would it be? Yeah, it's uh, so so far so far we've actually like uh, financed everything ourselves with uh, the cash in the bank. Because in the first year, to be honest, like uh, I, I really sucked at hiring and spending money. So the, the money started like kind of piling up, <laughs> which was a good thing when we decided to uh, acquire a company. And then the way we structured the deal uh, with some of the companies that were like the, I would say the, the highest investment, like in the millions of dollars, we structured the deal in a way where um, the company had to reach certain milestone to get, um, you know, like uh, more money. And based on, it was based on the revenue, but also on the profitability. That way we would also use the cash that they generated during the growth to uh, give them like uh, the milestone and the associated bonus with it. Makes sense. And so let, let's jump into a little bit about this, this growth story and journey for, from 10 million to now 23 million. Um, and I can't remember, and I should have looked at this, but when you were on the podcast last, because uh, that was obviously when you you just kind of hit the 10 million, but it wasn't that long ago. Uh, but um, <laughs> if you can um, like tell me how long then has it taken you to get from 10 to 23 million? And then let's go a little bit about like some of the things that, that you've done, because I imagine uh, there are a lot of differences between getting from zero to 10, from, then from 10 to 23 um, so yeah, first of all, let, let's start like, how long has it, how, how long has it taken you? And then let's go into some of the things that you've been doing and some of the lessons learned. Yeah. So we, I think last time we had a chat, it was like uh, end of 2021. So it's essentially like uh, two years, roughly. Um, it took us two years to go from, uh, 
from uh, 10 to like uh, 23 right now. Um, and, and it's been like a, quite a challenging journey. I think the, the first learning I had is that uh, product market fit is not something that lasts forever. And for a long time, I believed that it was something, you know, that's like uh, once you have it, it's done. You know, like uh, I, I, could, I didn't see how our growth would stop being exponential. So the first thing is like uh, we faced actually that because our product was very like mass market and attracting a lot of different customers, we realized that the global was actually like uh, with a high churn and that we only had specific segments with extremely low churn and a net retention that was uh, above 100%. And it took us a lot of time to make the switch from targeting everyone to actually targeting the right segment in order to build up from it and find a new product market fit on that specific segment. So that I would say that was like the, the first biggest learning. Second things, and it goes a bit with it, it's like a growth is a S-curve. So you always think that uh, it's going to be exponential and never stop, but actually it's a S, which means that every time you hit like a product market fit or a channel, an acquisition channel that works well, eventually it will plateau. It's I mean, for some people, it plateaus when they are at $100 million in annual recurring revenue. So that's awesome. But for others, uh, it plateaus much earlier. And that's why you always need, if you want to keep like a linear growth or exponential growth, you always need to think about what's the next S-curve. So always try to implement like new testing, new customer acquisition channel, et cetera, et cetera. So you can build more growth down the line. Afterwards, like uh, another learning, I think it's uh, for me, it was in hiring. Um, I've, I've hired like so many people in the last six years. I've made like so many mistakes and everyone tells you like team is everything, etc. But I thought it was a bit bullshit because at first, you know, like you do everything yourself and then you train people and, and eventually like things work out. But when you pass 10 million, if you really want to scale, you you have to surround yourself with people who are like smarter than yourself, who can you know, like do the heavy lifting, do the things that you not you didn't even think of. And that's like really hard. And, and unfortunately, like um, for hiring, I thought there would be a secret sauce. But the only way to find exceptionally talented people is to meet with as many people as you can. So right now for every single critical role that we have at Lempire, I know that there are at least five or six people I've met in the last years who I'd love to work with. And I keep in touch with them, understanding like what are they doing, how their job doing. Like I try to help them when they struggle. Like uh, if they work in marketing, I would uh, go and do like conference in marketing with them or like talks for their company, et cetera, et cetera, just to nurture the relationship because the best hire we had in our company are people sometimes that I had met maybe like three years before hiring them. So always be hiring. I think it's like uh, super, super important. Is your leadership team now the same as the one that you, uh, you had at, at 10 million ARR or has that sort of changed out? Yeah, it's for, for us, it was like uh, we, we went actually through like a, a kind of like huge drama <laughs> where uh, at 10 million, when we cashed out, uh, my two other co-founders were like uh, a bit older than me, like 15, or 15 years older than me. They, they decided like uh, to leave the company like for personal reason, kind of out of the blue. So they were like two brothers, like family, etc. Uh, and we had to like from the day to another, like 
change entirely like uh, how we were doing like the all the tech um having like a different leadership in the technical team i think it took us six months to realize that it was not the right person within these six months we had lost like uh, two of the really good senior engineers uh, so we had to restructure the entire team we faced like a uh, technical debt for about like uh, i would say 18 months it took us 18 months from a technical standpoint to come back to you know like high velocity and for me this is like one of the key reason why we had at some point like a plateau that we recently like kind of break and went back to high velocity high shipping and now we're back to that phase where the momentum is actually back and it feels like amazing because it's we had like i would say almost a year of like really battling from hr standpoint from tech standpoint etc cetera, etc cetera. and then after that like uh, in every single department we did not really have like a, a leadership team, I would say. And this is something I really created in 2023, hiring like a, a COO, which is like chief operating officer. And that runs most of the day to day for me. So someone really smart with a lot more experience, who's hired team of hundreds, et cetera, a chief of staff, which I think is like amazing role because uh, she can handle really like all the project, making sure that everyone is sharp, everyone is you know, when they make a promise that they deliver on their promise, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we have a CMO joining uh, in 10 days now. <laughs> so, so all the C-level team actually like changed a lot. And, um, and I think it, it was necessary because if you, if you go back to the story of Lemlist, we started as a bootstrap company in a very crowded market. So when you, when I reached 1 million in ARR, I think we were a team of like five. And so it was very small and I was doing basically like uh, entirely like business side. So marketing, sales, et cetera. And the people I hired at that time were just the people who had a good mindset and wanted to work for us because you have no, no street cred, no street credibility. You're like no one. You can't attract like uh, top people. And 1 million, it's even if for me at the time it felt insane, et cetera, it's still like not huge to attract like the, the top talents, et cetera, et cetera. So at that time I had to kind of like compose a team with people who had like uh, the internal drive to learn, but eventually everyone plateaus. And, and I think like uh, the level at which, and sometimes you plateau and you plateau for like uh, a few years as an individual, and you just need like another manager, another like environment to just step up again. And, you know, a career is built like uh, over, I think, like tens of years. But I feel like sometimes in the startup world, <laughs> everyone wants like honorific titles, uh, wants to be like head of C-level, etc. Um, but I think this uh, eventually it's a mistake and you really need to kind of like uh, find the right people for the right stage. Um, another mistake I made, and I think this is the one that... Uh, I will definitely not do in the future if I launch a company and it's uh, giving titles way too early to people, you know, who, who don't actually like deserve the title. Um, and, and I think like, uh, it's something that I had read, I knew about it, but I felt, no, it's fine. My team is the best. Like, uh, but the reality is like individual contributors are really not the same as managers. And, and there is like a big difference managing team and being like uh, really good at your job. For me, it's, it's two different things. You have people who have both when you're lucky, but most often 
it takes time to learn to be a great manager and you can break teams by having like uh, people who feel threatened by their team members, etc. And for us, it, uh, it was also like uh, at some point difficult to handle all of that. It's it's a pretty common uh, mistake uh, that one, and uh, yeah, certainly one uh, I, I've experienced myself. And 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 so you mentioned you've hired the C, uh, COO now. Uh, you've got a chief of staff. So in, in terms of so you've got somebody managing the day to day and and like these special projects. So in terms of your time and where you're focused, um, you know, what does your CEO role look like now as you're at twenty three million? Uh, to where you want to go, you, you know, I'm sure 50 million, you know, uh, and above. Uh, so how, how does that enable you to empower you to, to, to be the CEO that you need to scale the business? And, and where are you spending that time? Yeah, it's, it's actually like uh, right now I've since January. So like a month ago, I'm doing my transition from, uh, you know, like being very hands-on in the day to day with the CEO, like helping him to learn everything about the business to now where my goal is really the top, what I call the top up funnel. So right now I'm, uh, I'm spending a lot of time producing content about like how to grow a business, giving like a lot of tips. I have lots of partnerships going on and things that are going to be built because I know that one of the success of Lemlist was how I managed to really grow a community, grow an audience, help a lot of people at scale. And eventually when, you know, like people were happy with the advice I was giving, they then decided to check Lemlist and if they needed it, they started using it. So the goal for me is really like to have that top-up funnel in mind and spend a lot of time creating content. So I would say that's like maybe 50% of the time. Then um, I would have like uh, the relationship with investors, potential buyers, potential like uh, companies that we want to acquire. So this takes also like a big of time, like uh, maybe like... Uh, 30% and the 20 other percent are like, uh, I like the team. Uh, so I still have meetings. I still have people, you know, who I need to spend time with. Um, and, uh, and obviously like, uh, in the 30%, when I count, like if I had to split the 30%, I would say like investors relationship is maybe investors and, uh, potential acquirers or like people who, you know, we never know, like down the line. We don't want to sell now, but it's just like good to build relationship. I think this is maybe like 5%. Then I would have like uh, trying to like source companies for potential deals, etc. It's another like 5%. Then I have maybe like uh, 15% with uh, customers. So I'm continue doing, you know, like uh, customer stories, customer interviews, etc. And, and then another like uh, 10% uh, that is based, you know, more on like trying to think of the vision, where we're heading, where do we want to go, like what's the best route for us, et cetera. Awesome, awesome. And I, I saw your LinkedIn post today, so I was like, uh, uh, Guillaume is back uh, on LinkedIn <laughs> and, uh, and, and posting good content. And it is yeah. like um, uh, when you're in the day-to-day, you know, in, in the weeds and you know, of the operations uh, of the business to to find time and the, mi- the mind space to create content, I, it's a challenge that I find. And I think, you know, many entrepreneurs... Uh, find as well um, because suddenly you, you become so busy but you know that you want to create content but it's like how, how can you do it you you need to free up this time right and obviously by putting these roles in place uh, that's done it for you um, let, let's move into the quickish fire round uh, uh, now Guillaume oh do people still call you G by the way or uh, yeah yeah G, uh, G, yeah, G is yeah, easier G. it's easier it's easier for me um, all right G let, let's go uh, what one thing has moved the needle the most for you in your career 
That's a good question. The, the number one thing I think that uh, moved the needle for me, it was um, actually with uh, Ayman Al-Abdullah, you know, like the former CEO of uh, Absumo. Uh, I was in Austin and eventually like uh, we, were we were chatting and at the time I think we were making maybe $250,000 uh, in annual recurring revenue. And when he asks for my revenue and I say 250K, and then he's like, okay, what's your goal for this year? I say, I would love to reach 1 million. And then he say, why not 10? And eventually I'm like, yeah, I think like we need a bit of time. Like, and then, okay, how much time to go to 10? And then I give him my time frame, and he's saying, I think you can do it in less. And it was basically like the first time I had someone who kind of like believed in me to reach like higher potential. And from that, I think that, you know, I... I, they, they were kind of like a, a mindset switch where I felt like I was not ambitious enough because when I started, I didn't have ambition. Um, for me, my ambition was to, you know, like get a, a salary so I could, uh, help my girlfriend at the time paying the rent. Um, and eventually like having someone, you know, who see things 10 or 20 times bigger, uh, for yourself than you is actually amazing. And I think that was the biggest helper and that basically like forced me to think of things in a way at a way bigger and larger scale. And I think that helped us like uh, grow a lot faster. What about the biggest failure you've made and lesson learned? I think the, the biggest failure for us was uh, being too comfortable with product market fit. I think like uh, momentum is something that is really, really hard to get because going from zero to one, it's a pure mind strength. You are the only one as a founder who believes it. Everyone will call you crazy until it works. But when it does, you should never uh, kind of like rest on your laurels and just feel like it's going to be like this all the time. I think at some point we lost the sense of urgency the urgency of shipping more features, the urgency of shipping articles fast, the urgency of taking action and doing things. And we went a bit too much in the, oh, now we're a $10 million company. We should do things differently. We should spend a lot more time on editing little things. When we ship a landing page, there should be like five people working on it. And for me, it was like the worst thing that ever happened to the company because no one had actually, you know, the the ambition to deliver things on their own. Everyone was hiding behind someone else. Uh, there were no accountability, uh, no, and, and everyone would find excuses. And I think like it's, uh, it's something that can happen at a certain stage. And keeping the sense of urgency in everything you do, I think is essential. What about the hardest thing um, uh, about being a CEO? <laughs> that's, uh, that's I, I think the hardest thing is... Uh, it's probably like the, the loneliness, you know, of, uh, of being a CEO, because the reality is like, um, I've always been someone who loved people like, uh, you know, like since I'm a kid, I love to be surrounded by people, etc. But eventually, you know, as I grew my business, this part of myself kind of like vanished because, you know, like where I spend the most of time is, uh, working, working with people I love, etc. But they still see me as a CEO. Uh, so, you know, like, and the same, you know, with uh, my group of friends, uh, it's where I'm at right now. Like I'm, I'm 32. 
you know, like, uh, I've, I've made like tens of millions of dollars. It's, uh, the, the company is like growing really fast, etc. Like I'm in a, a position that is very, very unique and I'm extremely lucky. But from that also comes like, uh, loneliness because like people obviously like, uh, sometimes like they look at you in a very different way, uh, in their minds, you're, you have changed or, and, and all this thing is, uh, is sometimes a bit like, uh, heavy, but, uh, yeah, it's 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 part of uh, of the job, I would say. <laughs> it, it is, and uh, I, I think again, if we listen to the podcast, it's probably the the most common answer to the the, the hardest thing about being a CEO. But it, because it, it is very true. Um, what about? I mean, do you have a, a like a favorite a book on business that's kind of helped you apart from your own, um, the 150 million secrets? Uh, but um, you, you know, what is what is your favorite book on on business and why? There are like, uh, there are maybe two books that, uh, I really enjoyed one. I think it's, I, I'd recommend it like, uh, to do this before, like, uh, uh, a C, C level retreat or exec retreat, which is, uh, the five dysfunctions of, uh, of a team. I think it's really good because, uh, it goes through like pretty much everything that you'll encounter when it comes to communication problem. And the characters in the book are really characters that you will find in your company from uh, the pessimist to the over-optimist to the one that doesn't know shit about data, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think this was a really, really good book. And the second one that uh, I loved when it comes to understanding bootstrapping and also like uh, what investors can do and why the terms of the deal that you get are actually like a hundred times more important than valuation and amount raised which is uh, Lost and Founder from uh, Ren Fishkin because uh, he's basically telling the story of how he raised money with shitty terms that he didn't understood at the time. And eventually, like uh, when he was about to get acquired by HubSpot, one of his investors uh, blocked the sales. Uh, and after that, Moses' company started like uh, declining. Uh, no one would acquire it, et cetera, et cetera. He got fired. I mean, it's, it went really like... Uh, sideways and, and i think like you know like whenever you take money raise money do a cash out etc or even sell your company like you need to be like extremely careful about the terms because uh that's what that's what really like change in uh in the end yeah both uh both good book recommendations there uh th- thanks for sharing um and uh yeah i mean we've come to the the end of the podcast i mean i was going to ask you so you're at 23 million now uh when are you planning on getting to 50 <laughs> that's uh what's the goal you you want uh you want the the ceo answer or the <laughs> <laughs> i mean just between us just between the podcast just between us. Yeah. <laughs> no like to be honest if if we could reach 50 like uh by the end of uh 2020 we're in 2024 right now or 2024 yeah, 2024. yeah. yeah. <laughs> so if if we can do that by the end of 2025 that would be really awesome I think the, uh, the 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 former CEO of AppSumo would like that answer. It's uh, <laughs> uh, ambitious one, and, and, and it would be awesome. I'm, I'm sure you can do it. Uh, G, if people want to reach out to you, um, where can they find you online and, and learn more about Lempire as well? Yeah, so Guillaume Moubesh on LinkedIn or on Instagram. This is where I post uh, the most, uh, I would say, snack content. Uh, on YouTube, I do like uh, more in-depth videos on how to grow like uh, a business and people can email me at guillaume at lempire.com and I reply to everyone. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, G, for being a great guest on the show today. I think we're going to see you uh, at Sastock in Dublin 
uh, this year. Yes, uh, I believe the, these are these are these are the rumours or, or, or confirmed. So excited uh, for that. So looking forward to seeing you in in person. Uh, and then we'll obviously have you back on the podcast when you hit fifty million. Uh, and so I'll schedule it in for I'll schedule it in for December twenty twenty five. And uh, let, let's see if we can keep to that. Uh, awesome. Good motivation. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being a great guest again on the uh, on the podcast. Congrats on all the success, sharing all the lessons transparently. Uh, a lot of admiration. So uh, really appreciate. Thanks so much, uh, Guillaume Besh, CEO of Lempire. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of the SaaS Revolution Show. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you learned something from it, check out sasdoc.com forward slash events to find all the upcoming SASDOC conferences around the world. Want exclusive SAS content and actionable insights to grow your SAS? Join our community of over 36,000 SAS founders at sasdoc.com.